Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. Danny V here. This episode is part of the Summer Series Takeover 2021, where a friend of the podcast, a writer or illustrator who has been interviewed on the podcast, chooses an author of their choice to chat about books, writing and any other topic they choose. Enjoy. Danny, Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so yeah. true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could like, no, edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, it's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? everyone thank you so much for tapping on this episode of words and nerds i'm so excited that danny's let me take over the podcast today because it means that i get to chat to the british novelist claire chambers people say that you tend not to make new friends as you get older and i would have said that you don't generally acquire new favorite writers at my age either but and then i came across small pleasures last year and that's all gone out the window it's quickly entered my f boat list my favorite book of all time list um, I came to it by a review in the Times, which called the book almost flawless. And so obviously I proceeded to order my copy immediately. And while I waited for it, I went to Google, where I read it um, described, reviewed by so many um, amazing publications that then became the book of the year for the Times, the Daily Telegraph, the Evening Standard, Daily Express, the Spectator, which is essentially all the newspapers and major magazines that matter. It was then a BBC book at bedtime, which is something of a big deal. And it's released in our hemisphere this April, so you can pre-order it now, but I expect after hearing both the story of the book and the story of how the book came to be written and where Claire was in her career, when she began writing it, you'll need to get in earlier than that, which thankfully you can since the ebook and the audiobook are already out here. There's so much to talk about that I'm just going to bullet point her bio. She was born in Croydon in South London, which, if you don't know it, was also the birthplace of Kate Moss, and it's home to one of London's better IKEAs. After going to Oxford, she entered the publishing industry as a secretary, and it was that publishing house that took her first novel when she was just in her 20s, although they did make her type her own contract, which I think is 
brilliant. Um, eight more novels have followed in the years after that. And it was Small Pleasures, number nine, which has sort of struck a real chord. Um, Claire, my favorite is that on Twitter, you describe yourself as a nice person, non-practicing. And since our listeners don't get to see you, I just, I took an intake of breath when I first Google image search you to see, to notice how much you look like Helen Mirren in her younger days. It's actually astonishing. Everybody just go on image search immediately. You'll be so amazed. <laughs> so welcome and thank you so much for staying up late to chat to us. Oh, it's lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Um, now tell me, I, I, as a novelist myself, I always slightly, you know, think inside when someone says to, you know, give us the elevator pitch, give us the one minute pricey of the novel, but I'm in the, I'm in the power sort of chair today, so I'm going to make you do it. So will you tell us the, the sort of potted summary of, of Small Pleasures? Um, well, this is one of the one of my books where you actually can describe it in a sentence. Um, it's about... Um, the story of a woman in the 1950s who claimed to be a virgin mother and the, uh, the journalist is tasked with um, investigating whether or not she's a, she's a miracle or a fraud. Um, and that's really the one line description of yeah. what it's about. And it's set in the 1950s, which neither of us were alive to, to witness, but it's such an authentic um, setting that you've created this amazing world which even you know sort of all the way on the other side of the world you you immediately enter into it which I want to talk about as well and how you actually constructed it and researched it but will you tell us because it's such an extraordinary story but can you tell us how you actually came to it um not where your inspiration came from I would never ask a novelist that question but you did actually come across a story which which got the idea sort of um planted in your mind much earlier than when you wrote it is that right yeah, I, I um, just heard a, a piece on Woman's Hour, which is a sort of iconic radio programme in this country. Um, about 20 years ago, uh, I was just kind of casually listening in and it, it was a, a piece by the original journalist who'd researched this story in the 1950s about this um, big sort of newspaper event where they were trying to find a virgin mother and they advertised for women to come forward who would be prepared to be sort of subjected to all sorts of medical tests. And lots of people presented themselves and were, were duly ruled out because they clearly didn't understand what the word virgin meant. And that's sort of thing. <laughs> fundamental but biology. <laughs> eventually they came, they, they left with this one woman, Emmy Marie Jones and her daughter, who was by now 10 years old. And she claimed that she'd been in a sanatorium or some sort of clinic at the, at the time when she was supposed to have conceived. And um, she was astonished to find she was pregnant when when she went to the doctor a few months later and said she felt unwell and and had this this child. Um, so obviously this this was then then investigated for about six months um, and they the doctors did all sorts of blood tests and saliva tests and all, all the sort of things that were available in the 1950s, which were fairly limited. Obviously, I mean, this story is absolutely unique to 1950 because you couldn't set it now. It would have been done and dusted and DNA yeah. profiled within yeah. five minutes. Exactly. But it's sort of perfect timing for this, this story where it, there was sort of just enough evidence to prove that there was complete um, compatibility between mother and daughter, but not really quite enough um, biological evidence to, to disprove her claim. So it was a, it was a sort of um, tabloid sensation. So I, I just sort of heard this story on the radio and I thought, what, a, what an interesting story. Um, but I was I was writing comedy at the time, sort of what I considered comedy anyway. And I thought this this story seems to me as someone who who doesn't really believe in the possibility of the supernatural, that this story has a sort of dark side to it and, and is probably a sad story. And I, yeah. I didn't feel that it was it was a comedy. So I just 
left it aside. And then after sort of years of um, writing various other avenues, I went through a really fallow period of just not being able to write and writing, spending years writing a book that just didn't work and having to abandon it. And I, having done that, I thought, well, why not go back to this? Well, I've got nothing to lose. Um, you know, I've, I'm already pretty much unpublishable now. Um, so I'll just have one last shot at writing. Yeah. And um, I'll go back to that story that I, I'd sort of been interested in all those years ago. And, and I kind of enjoyed, I enjoyed the research. Um, you know, that, that sort of was the thing that really got me interested, researching the area that I lived in in the 50s, because I decided that's where I'd set it. Yeah. The, the original story um, took place on Fleet Street and was a kind of big London newspaper, the Sun, Sunday Pictorial. But I just thought, no, this is, this is going to be a story about small people, um, you know, local stuff, parochial stuff. Um, it, it's not about the big scoops. I want it to be a very kind of small scale story. So I, I set it in the in the suburb that I live in, and and that and that allowed me to um, kind of research the sort of history of my own area yeah. in the nineteen fifties. Yeah, and, and um, it is full of such fine grained sort of detail. I think that's what's really amazing about it that it's so you have sort of shrunk this world right down, and the protagonist who's Jean Swinney, she's sort of an unmarried spinstery, or she feels like a spinster in her sort of late like thirties. She's got a mother that she cares for who um, is a very difficult woman sort of some sort of social I, I guess I you know um she requires a lot of care and so Jean's, Jean's quite bound to her and then she works at this local paper and she um you know feels as though she's slightly at the end of her youth and nothing much exciting is going to happen she writes the recipe column I think doesn't she in the home hints mm -hmm. and then this huge thing lands in her lap um and sort of you know just massively ends up blowing up her own experience and I guess she's a bit I mean comparisons are always odious but there is a sort of touch about of the Eleanor Oliphant about her in the sense that she's really interesting but not necessarily necessarily someone that you'd want as your best friend you know she's slightly spiky isn't she yeah she's she is she is slightly spiky she's slightly kind of slightly embittered by her um her lot really that she's she's the unfortunate sister who didn't get away from the mother uh, her, her younger sister has fled to a glamorous kind of happy valley existence in in Kenya and Jean is stuck at home in in um, Bromley uh, looking after a sort of querulous semi-invalid and so that that sense of um, the unfairness of, of things and the sort of limited horizons and frustrated potential is all is all kind of there in her in her character but you can't help feel sorry for her um but there's that sort of there's always that sort of pull of duty and uh you know duty sort of holding mm. you back from fulfilling yourself yeah um, and but then she obviously becomes quite attached to the 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 woman who comes forward with the virgin birth story and then um her family because it's this completely you know it's it's more the ideal and it's this family life and she which she hasn't had and she becomes I think there's some lines that she crosses almost or or at least she gets quite close to you know stepping out of her professional role in it yeah I think I think she crosses rare. all sorts of all sorts of lines I mean immediately she she goes along expecting to to have this story kind of done and dusted in an afternoon and that you know she's going to be immediately able to suss this woman out um, but very quickly, she becomes almost almost romantically drawn to her. Um, I sort of I sort of wanted there to be a kind of 
frisson of, of exactly. attraction between the two women. Yeah. Um, Gretchen, the, the virgin mother, putative virgin mother, is very attractive. She's younger than Jean um, and she's she sort of lives the alternative life that Jean didn't manage, the sort of happy mm. domestic um, suburban housewife. Mm. Um, and so that so she once she's once she's sort of rather fallen under her spell her her independence and her her objectivity is immediately compromised mm. because she sort of wants the story to be true um so that's the kind of first line she crosses and and then of course she starts to feel very attached to the little girl and she she wants to kind of help out as a sort of babysitter or whatever and so so she just she becomes more and more involved in the family yeah. um, there's a bit and, where she buys her buys her a rabbit and you've already established by then this tension of like oh you know because it's almost that infatuation that you know we've all sort of experienced when we meet this new person they're so glamorous they're different from anybody we know and they they're sort of your entree into this new world and just remember when she bought that rabbit for the little girl I was like oh goodness this is getting a little bit you know out of control what's going to happen because I don't know that is that that's sort of where the some of the darkness comes from is that you just are really you feel quite tense through it of thinking this is not going to end well um which we won't mm. get anything but I think that was incredibly clever how you held that sort of in you know to make a suburban thriller almost in a way it's sort of what it feels like yeah there's a sort of there's a sort of um dark kind of edge of, of things things kind of being just slightly going wrong I sort of hint at, at sort of chaos and um I mean in the very opening scene a bird gets falls down the chimney and makes a sort of terrible mess before it can be freed and that, that's that sort of image of chaotic attempt at liberation and yeah and on Jean's first um trip to visit the husband because she wants to suss out whether the husband's applying pressure to his wife to get this this matter sort of wrapped up yeah. and solved and she just wants to check that she's not under duress and um he, he's a, in a a jeweler's shop in London and she while he's out of the room she sort of fiddles with his things and sort of noses oh, around and cuts yeah. herself on the saw and yeah. so there's all these kind of tiny micro perils that yeah. uh, are just just hint to us that that all may not may not be exactly um, rosy yeah it's a bit it's got I don't know if listeners have ever read notes on a scandal the Zoe Heller novel but it's very similar to that I mean, not in the story, but just in that building, building tension and the tiny incremental choices that Jean makes that you never sort of rush all the way to the end of thinking, I'm going to get far too attached to this woman. It's just the tiny daily choices of I'm just going to, you know, as you say, dig around in the jewelry shop while he's not here and pick up this saw and it just builds and builds and builds. It's amazing. But obviously we need to circle back to what you've already given us a taster of, which is that you felt like this was your sort of last hurrah with fiction, which is amazing because obviously brilliantly happy ending it's become sort of almost I, I don't want to say a breakthrough novel because you've got far too many for that but tell us where you were in your career and why you felt like that um and how almost you you got yourself to start because that's a hard place to start from feeling that you're unpublishable yeah I mean I, I like to tell this story because I think it kind of gives hope to people who feel that they're perhaps um the publishing industry is is likely to overlook them or has already overlooked them um, but I, I started very young in publishing and I, I was published in my early 20s. And, you know, that I, I sort of assumed that that would that was it now. I was sort of launched and yeah. life would be sweet. But of course, you know, publishing has just, you know, you, you always discover new ways to to be disappointed with each book. <laughs> and uh, in due course, 
I sort of decided to, after I'd written a few books and I, I was pleased with them all and they had it reasonably well received, um, I just felt that I wasn't, I was just writing the same thing over and over and I needed to try something different. So I tried writing teenage fiction because I had teenagers in the house at that point and I thought, you know, rather like an anthropologist, I was sort of studying this strange <laughs> tribe and finding yeah. it interesting. Yeah. But I'm such a slow and lazy and laborious writer that my children were sort of more or less grown up and left home before I'd finished the project and that my clearly to jumpers for us and by the time she finished them letting them we were three sizes bigger essentially yeah I think that that was the problem and also to be to be a writer for for young adults you need to write them quickly because they've only got kind of a few years of reading before they, they don't want to read you anymore so yeah clearly that wasn't going to be the career for me and so after that, I then started again on this on a new book for adults. I, I sort of went back to writing what I felt more at home at. Um, and it just it just didn't work. And I, I had that kind of massive loss of confidence where you think, how can I not have known that this wasn't working? How can I have spent five years on this and not have realised that what I was doing was typing and not writing? Oh, my and, gosh. Uh, it's, yeah, it's my stomach just sank because I had the exact same experience with Sorrow and Bliss. But I only took, I only spent a year on it, which I thought was just the absolute, you know, I mean, to know you spent five years on it makes me feel slightly better, but it is absolutely gutting because you get to the end of this thing, which you've slaved over, you're not dabbling in it, do you know what I mean? You're not just sidling up to it when you feel like it on a Sunday afternoon, you're working really hard. And then to, to reach that point that's, you know, you subconsciously know in, but can't admit to yourself. And then you're like this is unsalvageable it is just devastating isn't it you mm, it, it is all hope is lost is how I remember feeling yeah it is it's terribly depressing and I, I was sunk in depression for quite a long time um but once I'd once I'd committed myself to not trying to keep you know trying to reanimate its corpse and just <laughs> ditch it and start again it was much easier because I, I think it's trying to trying to kind of rebuild a house of cards from the bottom without destroying it is impossible and it's better to just start again with something yeah. completely different so I once I'd um, decided to do that and I, I kind of got a new agent who wasn't already weary of me um, and I hadn't sort of overused their goodwill um, I, I felt that I, I could sort of start again with confidence and and I and this time I just did it differently I just wrote a really really detailed plan which is not something I ever used to do I used to be a bit more gung-ho and, and start mm. in a big sort of access of enthusiasm and then halfway yeah. through I'd get into this sort of awful Bermuda triangle of not not being able to get out yeah. and not knowing where I was going and yeah. I just didn't want that to happen again so I I wrote a really detailed plan um and you know so every day when I sat down I knew exactly what I had to do and that made yeah. the writing much more pleasurable because yeah. I wasn't I, ha I had this scaffolding to support me yeah, there's so an amazing it, it, writer called Robert Caro who's become, he's a non-fiction writer, he writes biographies of Lyndon Johnson, he's now in his 80s and he's up to volume four and they're sort of a thousand pages each but he's, he spends years and years on them but he says he, he, might, he writes the most detailed plan because it makes the next seven years much easier even though it's incredibly hard to write those plans so I think it's definitely something in it because there's that, you know, there's the fly by the seat of your pants but I, I can see that that you sort of even though you were so tightly structured you were also if if you thought it was slightly all over and this is your your writing was more abandoned aren't you you just think well it doesn't matter anyway it's never going to see the light of day or you you really did want to publish it but you just it felt like your last shot um I never felt oh this I never felt this won't see the light of day because my new agent had approved the the idea and then she'd approved the um 
plan and then she'd approved my opening chapters. So I knew that she already felt confident that this was something she was going to be able to sell. And that was really the, the encouragement that I needed to, to just, you know, forge on with it and, and spend two, it took about two years, the writing, the plotting was the thing that sort of took me longer, but the, the writing took two years. I'm not, I'm not the fastest. I'm quite slow. And, and I, I re I sort of edit as I go along. So when I've finished, I really have finished that my first draft is my last draft. Yeah. Um, and that's just how I work. Yeah, that's really rare. It's much, you know, it seems more common that you put it through multiple, multiple drafts and significant changes every time. But that's really interesting. And I'm so glad mm. you didn't say, and then it just three months later, I've done the whole thing. <laughs> no. I'm like, oh, please don't tell me that when I'm toiling. I haven't even sat down after three months. Um, and then obviously it came out in July last year in the UK which was possibly the worst time for a novel to come out because you were in heavy duty lockdown. So you're sort of the class of 2020 of novelists who had that happen to them. So it's doubly extraordinary that it's then achieved what it has. When, I mean, did your heart sort of sink when you realized that when it was gonna come out? And also when did you start to realize what was the evidence that, oh, this is actually finding its readers? You know, how, when did you become aware of that? Um, I, I suppose I, my heart started sinking when I realised that bookshops were, you know, going to be closed in the build up and and um, there was a sort of shall we postpone, shan't we postpone. But I thought, well, if you postpone, it just means you're going to be there's going to be twice as many books coming out yeah. when you finally do launch it. Just let's just go with it. And it, my instinct was that reading was just going to be one of those things that lockdown couldn't interfere with. Obviously, mm. all the fun things like festivals and you know, going to bookshops and meeting readers, all the nice stuff, which mm. obviously I hadn't done for decades. Um, that went out the window. But the actual matter of people reading seemed to be seemed to, seemed to be helped by lockdown rather than hindered. So I thought, well, you know, I've just got to make the best of this. And, you know, people are in far worse situations. Other industries are suffering far more than mm. the publishing industry. Um, you know, it, it's it's not necessarily the disaster that I, I might think it is. Um, so yeah, I was kind of just pretty sanguine about, yeah. about what was going to happen. Yeah. Um, and all writers were in the same boat. So, you know, nobody was being advantaged over anyone else. Um, but I, I first got a sense that it was going going to sort of get some more attention than I was used to um, when people on Twitter started kind of posting, you know, comments about it and the jacket and saying how much they loved it. And it just sort of started to build um, and I think I think social media has really helped. I mean, that's something that's changed completely from when I was first published. I mean, when I was first published, the, the sort of publicity people would say, oh, Claire, this is such a such a word of mouth book, by which they meant there is no budget for We're this. We're not putting whatsoever. any money behind it. Yeah, <laughs> you've got to get people passing it on one yeah. to the other, which but, means you know, they're all sharing one copy, aren't they? I have yeah. the dread of And it takes six months it. for that to happen. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there's just no such thing as word of mouth in in the days before social media. But word of mouth in in the Twitter age actually does mean something. You know, you, you look. There are people who have a huge reach, and if one of them likes it, um, then that really helps. And I had lots of kind of good good feedback on Twitter, which just helped it yeah. start to build. Yeah, and, and actually, everyone was stuck in on their phones, yeah. so. and they couldn't lend it to each other. People had to buy their own because you weren't allowed to see anybody. Because usually yes. there's a lot of lending that goes on, which we are grateful for, aren't we? But at the same time, you're like, mm, that's another <laughs> another three pounds down the drain that I could have got to then bought their own. Um, but and then so 
also, I mean, did you find that booksellers suddenly, you know, because it had been a few months by then, so it was, were you astonished by almost the creativity that booksellers then applied to getting these books out anyway? And online events had started by then, hadn't they? It was like everybody scrambled quite quickly to find a new way of selling books in that period. Yeah, I mean, indie booksellers have been great. You know, the, the ones who have got behind it have have sold, you know, masses of copies and they, they just do that hand selling, don't they? they? They choose the books they really like and really love and they know who their readers are and they can just they can just put them into the hands of the readers they know are going to like them. So that that's been a real saving, um, saving thing. They, they're, they've been great. Um, and events, I mean, yeah, there's there's always been a few kind of online Zoomy type um, events to do. I'm not quite sure how much how much actual kind of traffic they generate because it's not like when you go to a festival and you you sign loads of books and, and sell them to people there and then you know after a Zoom chat there's not necessarily much much kind of uh, follow through. But it's it's kind of nice just to see the faces of readers after yeah. you've been you know working away on your own for years without any feedback whatsoever. Yeah, it's just absolutely. kind of nice to meet some readers in whatever yeah. form. Yeah, the first time, because Sorrow and Bliss, my novel came out in September, so not too long after yours. And for such a long time, we were, you know, completely online events. And so people do watch the Zoom and they're lovely. But when you have a question posted in a comments box, it's got to be quite short and to the point. So it can feel quite bald when someone says, why is Martha so unlikable? And you're like, oh, <laughs> OK, I'll just go from there. But when you meet someone in person, you get that amazing, incredible preamble of the question of like, oh, I, you know, the novel meant this to me or, you know, I love this. And then you get why is she unlikable and you feel like, oh, well, I already know that you did actually like the book. So I can. It's hard, isn't it, to sort of to speak to people that you can't see and you really don't know what they what they really thought of the book. So it's it's a new art form that we've all acquired. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's true. And. Um, I did do, you know, a couple of kind of reading group um, Zooms and the, the people were kind of ferociously intelligent and, and well-read. And, uh, you know, it, I felt like I was being back at university with like 12 tutors and one yeah. student, which is me. Um, exactly. So, yeah, no, yeah. It, was, it was interesting. And how did you feel the fact that you, it was such a switch in genre as well, which I we touched on it but it, it was you went from really romantic comedies weren't they more of the sort of um I mean Bridget Jones is an outdated reference but there was you know that working tightly sort of ilk and then suddenly to do this thing were you was it a completely different craft when you're actually working on it did it mean changing your dialogue style and changing the style of description and having to almost learn from all over again yeah I, I've because I've always written kind of comedy, I've always felt that, that that I must be funny and that I have a duty to my reader to to be witty. And if I'm if I'm not witty several times a page, why would they bother reading? But I I enjoy books that aren't witty myself. I like reading books that are deadly serious, indeed mm. tragic, you know, and and thrilling or whatever. I, I don't always look for laughs when I'm reading. So I thought, why why don't I just give myself permission not to be funny all the time if I can? And I I said to my agent you know do you think it's all right to not be funny and she said yeah yeah of course it's all right not yeah. to be funny just yeah. right but just yeah. tell us tell the damn story yeah. which so, of course the result is that it is actually really funny in places and it's in a much more sort of pathos filled 
way. I mean, her conversations with her mother, especially, and um, there's a scene which she gets completely drunk, which is incredibly out of character for her. Um, and so it, it's definitely, I want to say to readers that it really does have a lot of humor in it. It's not completely dark. Um, does it mean that when you sit down to do this again, I don't know if you've already started, um, but does that mean another change in genre or do you feel like you've found your meta? Is that a word? Um, I don't, I don't know. I, I just haven't, um, I haven't hit on the next thing that I want to do yet. I mean, I know there are some writers who, who have ideas like a stack of planes waiting to land, you know, just circling around <laughs> yeah. and uh, it's just, what are they going to do first? But I'm never like that. I, I, I always have a long time of thinking before I start something, you know, I really want to be absolutely committed to, to something before I start. And I want to know it's a, it's a good idea. And it, and it's all about a good idea that, you know, the writing is, is the fun bit. It's the, having the right idea so that's the thing that just takes the time and I just I just don't want to start something that I'm not 100% committed mm -hmm. to so I'm, I'm open you know I'm open to all all kinds of things you know I'm open to doing doing another book that's set in the 50s or doing doing a completely different era going back in time or something mm. absolutely bang up to date contemporary I, I'm yeah. just sort of at the moment just shuffling ideas around in my head and seeing what sticks yeah and for, especially for writers listening what is it that to save them the five years of sort of blood from a stone what is it that you ought to that you now know that you ought to feel so even if you have those difficult writing days how do you know that I mean when do you know to abandon it when do you know to keep going because writing is just hard and you should push through I mean is there a sort of feeling that's that something core that you think no there's you know this is there's something there or or or, I mean, how would you know next time to, to let something go much quicker? I don't know. I, I, I just don't know that I would. I would. That's the fear. That's the that's the looking into the abyss that I don't know <laughs> that I would that I would know. Um, so, you know, that I think I, although it's kind of a lesson learned that that it was a bruising experience and I came through it and and survived. I, I, I still haven't solved the mystery of what um, I, I mean, I know what went wrong with the original book It as as my agent said, it had six subplots, but no plot. So I, I know what was wrong with it. But I'm not sure that I could promise that I would recognise those flaws if I was in the yeah. middle of it, something. Um, I, I just would, you know, would say you just have to um, just kind of look inwards and, and face your fear and, and trust. Well, not, not trust, distrust, distrust your sense that it's all, it's all going to be fine and just, just kind of examine yeah. your conscience and think, yeah is it actually, is it actually yeah. as good as I think it is or I hope it is? Yeah. Um, and just, you know, fail early, fail yeah. early, don't, well, don't take thing, five but years it's so to fail. hard. Yeah, because once you get further and further along, you've got 30,000 words, which is too many to throw away, and then 50,000 words, you think, if only I'd thrown it away before, and it just keeps going and going. It's like renovating mm. a house and spending more and more money, you just should have knocked it down to begin with, um, but you're in yeah. a hole then. But did your writing practices change with this one? Like, I mean, I don't know if you have the sort of set times and the set places where you work. I mean, did you completely have to revolutionise how you worked to, to create something so different? Um, I was, I mean, I had less time because by this time I was working part-time at a school. So I only had afternoons to write in. Whereas when I wrote my romantic comedies, I was full, I was at home full-time and just writing. So I had less time um, and I had, and it was only afternoons, which is not my brightest time. I'm much more alert in the mornings. So, but there was no choice. So I yeah. just had to make myself alert. Um, 
but um, no, there wasn't really it, there wasn't really any change in my practice. My practice has always been don't don't sit down and think oh I've got to write a book. Just sit yeah. down and think I've got I've got to write two good pages, just two good pages, and then you know tomorrow I'll write two more good pages, and yeah. that that's kind of the way I work in just very small bits. And I try not to press on until I've fixed what I've done. I don't like leaving plot holes or um, you know issues of kind of anachronisms or, or yeah, um, chronology that need to yeah. be need to be sorted later I like to just fix it as I go along and so yeah each day I'm just adding to the to the story yeah it's funny um, isn't and that, it? that's yeah, always where of, I've worked yeah a lot of us say oh, if only I had more time but I've sort of come to see that actually less time can be better because I almost that you need a force that's against you. You need to be pressing against something because it shows if you're desperate enough or not. And you need that desperation, not not for the text, but to, to do this thing and to, you know, because we all have this sort of boiling ambition. I think that if you're a writer, whether or not you've actually published before, it just feels like everything you're frustrated when you're not doing it. So endless expanses of time can actually not be helpful so perhaps it was a blessing that you had to be in in school during the day yeah yeah and I think it just I think I had too much time before and it was just um it was depressing me how how unfruitful I was being with it and so I think having having a part-time job was was a benefit really and I still I've still got a job now I mean a different job but I don't I'm not sort of thinking that I'm a a 24 hours a day writer I I just like to just do something else that's that's not about me or my own writing. Yeah. And because you published your first novel really young, is that, had it been your ambition all through childhood? I mean, what kind of childhood did you have and what child were you? Were you, you know, under the covers with the torch, just reading and reading and reading? It was, had it always been the goal? Um, I was a pretty, it was a pretty bookish childhood because my dad was an English teacher and, you know, our house was absolutely full of books. Um, and uh, I was, I, I wasn't a great reader when I was in my teens. I was, you know, I just kind of liked, you know, kind of romantic Jilly Cooper kind of stuff. Um, and <laughs> the rubric, I wasn't get very but tall I, in those pages. But I kind of got into into literature and, you know, I, I read English at university and, you know, I just knew that books were going to be my thing one way or another, whether I was going to work in a bookshop or a publisher or write or something, it, that it was going to have to be to do with books. Um, and I think I think I get that from my dad. He was he was a real just an absolute bookworm. You know, he, he was sort of just every step of our house, every stair had books piled on it. You know, he couldn't see he couldn't see an ironing board without thinking, oh, that makes a nice shelf, and, and putting yeah. some books on it. Yeah, and if you did have to iron, it was moving all of Tolstoy before you could actually get to <laughs> yeah. the board. Um, how would it have been different if if that first novel, as you thought, oh, this is the go, and if it had have been a bestseller? How do you think it would have changed you? I mean, in that slightly sliding doorsy way, because there are novelists who break through at 23 and there are others of us who, you know, it's a much longer thing. What would the impact have been? How would you have been different as a writer and I guess as a person as well? Um, I don't know. I think it would have been, I think it would have been difficult in some ways to have a lot of success young because you've still got so much life to get through. And how can you, how can you keep up that sort of momentum of, of um, improving over decades and decades. I mean, I feel like I'm I'm in my fifties now. I, I haven't got much left to prove because I'm, you know, pretty much senile anyway. So <laughs> I haven't got that many that many writing years ahead of me. So um, you know, I I think in a way it's it's better to start small and and build rather than start with a massive bang from which the only way is is to fall. 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, some some people have managed to sustain a career, a sort of stellar career for decades after, um, you know, an early success. But I, I kind of take heart from from the from the sort of Barbara Pym style people who are rediscovered late in life or or Hilary Mantel, who yeah. use brilliant early books, are, though though respectfully reviewed and and much admired are not the, the hits they deserve to be yeah, and, and has has her success later on um, yeah and you mentioned Barbara Pym actually which I should have got in up front because you've been compared to her um and there's definitely that that amazing uh, simile what are the companion texts I mean not necessarily books that inspired you but what would you feel where does it sort of where do you think it sits and what are the texts that that you might have you know um th- that were in the back of your mind or or the ones even that we should read once mm-hmm. we finish small well, pleasures I just I, I just tried to immerse myself in in sort of literature either either set in the 50s or written in the 50s just to get that sort of the sense of what what vocabulary people used when they were speaking sort of dialogue and that sort of thing and um, there, there's all sorts of really different I mean really different things were published around the same time you know things like um, early Iris Murdoch and um, Rosamond Lehman and um, Elizabeth Taylor and Kingsley Amis and you know all sorts of really different people were and just you know culturally the 1950s was just a really odd mix I mean the, the year that Small Pleasures is set West Side Story came out and you just you just think these these two cultural sort of mm. scenarios are so different mm. um but but there's you know the 50s wasn't just about kind of um cocoa and uh you know tin pilchards that there was yeah. there was other stuff but but my my little corner of it is very much that sort of net curtains and, and yeah. disappointment and micro humiliations. Yeah. Um, and but it is in a way it does therefore make it sort of historical fiction in this in a sense um, to use that term very broadly. But did you have an absolute horror of anachronism? Like how did you make sure that you didn't have a sort of Toyota Corolla burning through at some point? Do you know what I mean? Like that you didn't get it wrong. Yeah. Uh, oh, I did. I did have a horror of it, and I I do have a horror of it, and I have actually made an anachronism, which I'm not even going to tell you because it's too painful to mention. But someone has, some wise soul has spotted it. But, yeah, um, the green pen <laughs> writing it always, an otherwise enjoyable yeah. novel was marred. <laughs> was completely it. ruined for yeah. me by this amazing. Exactly. Yeah, but it happens though um, because I read a novel recently it was set in New Zealand that had a snake in it. Like, there's no snakes in New Zealand and it does it can the suspension of display goes straight out the window doesn't mm. it because you think well you didn't check you didn't bother to check so yeah. it does rile readers up but sorry to cut you off but yeah, mostly I mean I did I did try and you know check as much as I could everything that I talked about and um it's not as it's not as onerous as, as it used to be with the internet to be able to check things and you know it, there's just so many ways of and I, I had this really great resource of my local parish magazines which had loads of that all those household hints come straight from the pages of authentic 1950s parish magazine start to highlight yeah you get so um, much accomplished don't you in the novel there's so much done in that sort of half page with something in aspic and all of that sort of thing it just does so much heavy lifting yeah yeah just the the ridiculous levels of thrift that were expected of women um yeah so so there was that and and also I had this sense that when you're writing about like when you're when you're trying to furnish a 1950s house in your mind it's no use it's no use going to 
research what what furniture looked like in the 1950s because people unless they were super fashionable people who lived in the 50s were still using the furniture from their parents and grandparents Gosh, back in the so 1920s true. yeah it wasn't a 50s show so, home it was actually the jumble no, that exactly yeah. exactly yeah. It's stuff that had been handed down from generations so I always think you've got to go 20 years back to, to furnish a, a house than, than yeah. just thinking it's a 1950s house so we're going to have yeah. these kind of vinyl wing chairs and yeah and exactly and, is, and sort of exactly. glass coffee tables it's not it's not really going to be like that everything's much older than than you think and also yeah. I had this rule that I just even though I'd done the research it shouldn't really find its way into the book too much I should never describe anything that I wouldn't describe in a contemporary novel just because I know what the thing yeah, is made I've of. Yeah, I've learned this you interesting know, fact and I'm going to shoehorn it in because yeah. I want, yeah, I want you to know that I, that I know it. Almost. That I know, yeah, because yeah. like, you'd never say he picked up his, you know, aluminium and crystal yeah. iPhone. Yeah, just because you know that it's made of that. Yeah. You'd just say he picked up his phone and, and if yeah. that's what you'd say in a contemporary novel, that's then what you'd say in a, in a yeah. you know, historical novel. So I just had that real rule that I would never describe anything for the sake of describing it it had to be yeah you know it had to be essential to know what it was like or, or yeah, it had to can... be part of the character yeah and that's why and I was for, describing we'll it. refer the rest yeah because it is a much as much about what to leave out and you don't need to sort of spoon feed us but I'm sure once you've gathered all that information it, it is difficult to not you know press it into service but do you mm. find as a novelist can you read fiction while you're trying to produce it or do you have to do an absolute blackout to make sure you're not influenced by anyone you're reading at the time no I can't I can't do a blackout because I I just like reading too much I, I'd much rather be reading than writing so I I can't do that I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily want to read something that was very similar to what I was writing um that I was likely to kind of plagiarize or mm. inadvertently or in any other yeah, way exactly but I I'd certainly I certainly just keep reading you know all the time the mixture of things I'm, I'm always I've usually got a non-fiction an audiobook and a fiction on the go at any one time and um yeah it, yeah. it does it does slightly interfere with writing the fact that you'd always rather be reading but yeah but also yeah. do you sometimes feel because I can't read fiction I do have to wait and let it stack up while I'm while I'm doing it because I find I accidentally am then reading it with a technical sort of view and I want to see how they did this thing it's almost looking at an embroidery but flipping it over to see all the knots in the back and sort of mm. wanting to be like, how did they move time forward and how, how did they manage it in and out mm. of a flashback but you're able to sort of still enjoy it for fiction yeah I, I, yeah I, I think I'm I'm just I'm not that analytical I just read it read it as a in a sort of speedy and um pleasurable reader's way with it not yeah. not reading it with a forensic eye at all yeah and so what are you, what are the three on the go at the moment, the audiobook, the non-fiction and the fiction? Oh, what am I reading? Three at the moment. Okay, the audiobook is um, Mick Heron, Slow Horses. Everybody's raving about this series and I'm very late to this party, so I think I need to crack on with the audiobooks, get get up, because he's on to book seven now, so I'm very behind. Um, but mm -hmm. that's a kind of spy, uh, sort of kind of quirky take on spy fiction, which is a genre I really like anyway. Mm -hmm. um, the non-fiction, I can't, even, I can't even remember what I'm reading at the moment. Non-fiction, we just finished 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy mm -hmm. or something like that. My, my mm -hmm. husband's been reading that to me. Um, so that's our worthy um, reading aloud book. And yeah. fiction, I'm reading I'm reading um, a proof. I, I won't say what it is because I've been sent a proof that is not yet published, but 
I've got a pile of proofs that I'm reading and um, today's proof I'm reading is is very good but um, I won't say any more yet because I haven't finished it I might go might go south (laughs) and tell me presumably Small Pleasures was the first of your books to be made into audio is that right to be made into Uh, no I think the others the others have been made into audio books back in back in the old days of like oh, okay um, when it was cds you went and got them cds the and tapes yeah 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 so 21 tapes. cds to be worn yeah yeah massive yeah. crate of, yeah, of cds and exactly. tapes um but how do you feel what's that like for you to then listen to someone else's interpretation of your work because do you hear the rhythm of the words when you're writing them as sort of the inflection and then this is someone else's inflection do you enjoy it or can you sort of slightly not not bear to well i haven't to i must admit read? i haven't I haven't listened to it all the way through. I I did um, get a, a shot at choosing one of you know the, the voice of the of the narrator you know of, from a selection so that I, it wouldn't be someone that I thought oh blimey what's that voice you know that's not yeah. how I imagined it. So I I liked the woman's voice. It was very easy to listen to and it felt kind of the right sort of age and and um, class and you know it yeah. just felt like the narrator the right narrator's voice. Um, so I was I was pleased with and I listened to the, the sort of opening chapter just to to check that I, I liked yeah. it and I did yeah. but I obviously wouldn't wouldn't sit down and listen to my own book kind of yeah. way, that would be weirdly <laughs> narcissistic yeah. <laughs> yeah but it is strange isn't it because not only do you need the narrator as you say to be someone that you can listen to because we've all had a book that's been like we've desperately wanted to read it but actually we can't bear that narrator and so you just have to let it go but also to be representative of the character because you could have the loveliest voice but it just isn't Jean or it just isn't Mm. isn't the setting so it's actually quite quite a delicate thing and a new thing isn't it in a way yeah yeah it Um, is I've have been turned on and off audiobooks by by the voice I mean usually it's it's I'm I'm turned on to them but especially American books there's some you know a lot of really nice New York accents that that really you know just do it for me and I I find I can listen to them reading almost anything and so those have been sort of plus they sort of brought something extra yeah but occasionally the voice just is just not just doesn't feel right and it, it's, a, it's a struggle I try either making it faster or slower to, to make the register right yeah sometimes yeah. it's just too sort of lugubrious and I'm trying to beef it up a bit so 1.75 exactly exactly <laughs> but I didn't realize until recently that people also we follow around our favorite narrators so often we're not searching on the author we're searching on what else did Amelia Fox read or what else is you know Derek Jacoby read so it's an interesting way in for people to the discoverability mm. of novels isn't it it's given authors a boost as well because people find our books that they might not otherwise have found yeah yeah I hadn't really thought of it like that I've, I've never kind of searched that way I'm a bit too a bit too author focused to yeah to have done yeah. that but um, well, there might be yeah. some surprises um so I've loved talking to you and I feel like I've learned so much and I feel like this is such a treat for our for us down here to have this book finally arriving in April and what I should say we haven't touched on the stunning cover I mean apart from the fact that it is so desperately Instagrammable I mean when you first saw that cover were you just overjoyed because it, it's unique and it's the colours are so striking were you just how did you feel when you first saw it and oh, fact, how did you I, feel when I you see it in the window? So, I felt so happy because um, you know book covers are so fraught that you know it, it's so often the case that you get something that's just ghastly that just kills your book dead and you, you feel miserable about it um, and so I and I was very mindful that the 50s there is a slightly sort of um, brownish, greenish tinge to the 50s that, that could have really put a damper on things. Um, <laughs> no one needs a brown I, book in the middle of a <laughs> pandemic, do they? <laughs> I, I was a bit worried that it was going to be very kind of 
beige and depressing, but but it's so beautiful. And yeah, I really liked it. And the the um the artist Ed Betterston is an absolutely top gent, and I'm really chuffed to bits with his his painting. I've got it yeah. on my wall actually. Um, yeah. It's, oh, of course. It's, yeah, it's a painting. And you won't need to. This is the thing when you won't need to be reminded when it's out here because it does leap off the shelf and leap off the table within a bookstore because the colours are so striking. It's the kind of one that you want to have on the top of the pile next to your bed because it's a little work of art in itself. So um, everybody go and order it now or go and get it on the ebook. And Claire, thank you so much for your time. It's just been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been lovely talking to you.